Well, as you know, or maybe you don't know, but this will be uh, an announcement to you of sorts. Um, we will not be meeting in this class uh, for the next two weeks after this Sunday. Of course, next Sunday being Christmas Day, and then the following Sunday being New Year's Day. We'll only have uh, a single 11 a.m. service on both of those days. And so uh, I thought that with those, uh, that upcoming break in our study in 1 Corinthians, the natural break, I would kind of take a break from it today. And of course, as we're in the middle of this uh, season of Advent, this time of anticipating the celebration of Christ's birth and, and just all the, the time of, of singing and reflection and scripture reading that we've been doing that, that centers our heart and our thinking uh, around this wonderful uh, reality for us as God's people, I thought that I'd take some time today to uh, turn our attention to that as well. Um, now, to do this, I am maybe somewhat boldly, uh, it might be better described somewhat foolishly, going to invite you into my head a little bit. Um, and, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to sort of bring you into some thinking that's been going on with me over the past 10 days or so. And really, the, the, the thinking that's been going on in my mind has been, you might say, stimulated by two prominent luminaries, two uh, theological luminaries. Um, the first is Charles Spurgeon, uh, the Prince of Preachers, a Victorian era, Victorian era preacher uh, in Great Britain, uh, just prolific uh, in his impact and his writing and his preaching, quoted and quoted and read and read and his writings distributed time and time and time again. And then the other luminary that's sort of been in my mind and inspiring some reflection around the Christmas season is Linus Van Pelt. Uh, Linus Van Pelt being the younger brother of Lucy Van Pelt and the close friend of Charlie Brown, prominent in the Charlie Brown Christmas special. Are you tracking with me now when I say Linus Van Pelt? Like I said maybe a bold invitation into my head, but you might be wondering how these two worlds have collided in my mind, Charles Spurgeon and Linus Van Pelt. Well, it began really uh, about 10 days ago or so, uh, around the first of the month, obviously, maybe a little longer, 18 days, however long it's been, when I began to uh, read in Charles Spurgeon's Joy to the World, a, a daily readings for Advent. It's kind of a Christmas devotional. And as I kind of got into it uh, day by day, I quickly uh, was drawn to, by Spurgeon's pen, to the account in Luke chapter 2, uh, the section of that familiar Christmas narrative in which Luke takes us to that hillside outside Bethlehem where the angelic proclamation to those shepherds takes place. And in fact, uh, in that, that Advent devotional by Spurgeon, obviously it's 25 different devotions, and 10 of the 25 center around Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 14. So it's, a, it's very heavily influenced by that particular section. And of course, 
If you're familiar at all with the Charlie Brown Christmas special, you know that the great theologian Linus Van Pelt takes us to that same passage as well. Well, all this kind of led me to, um, I, I, had to I was asked to speak or uh, teach in two chapel services, one for the primary school and one for the secondary school here at Cherokee Christian this past week. And so, of course, trying to uh, particularly relate, to, relate the, the truth and the message to the primary school kids, the elementary kids, I chose this particular title for my lesson. Is there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Now, to give you a little bit of personal background, I am very much uh, keen on the watching of this Christmas special as part of my traditional annual Christmas experience. Um, It's probably approaching idolatry. I don't know if I want to confess to that completely, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty fanatical about it. And of course, I can't say that everyone in my family has the same level of conviction about it. They sort of tolerate it to one degree or another with a little bit of, uh, probably at different seasons of my kids' lives, a little bit of irritation to just now maybe just, you know, sadness at my, you know, gradual demise. I don't know. Uh, but, uh, but it is one of those things where, like, every year I want to gather the family around to watch this Charlie Brown Christmas special. It's just kind of part of it. Do you, who has traditions, by the way, kind of annual things that you do as part of your tradition, that if they get upset or don't happen or interrupted, you kind of, you have, like, profound, you have to work through some things. Do you have that kind of thing going on? Well, that's kind of what happens to me with this. It's like... I, I get a little bit, you know, out of sorts. I mean, this, is, this kind of has to happen. Yeah, it's idolatry, now that I think about it. It's definitely idolatry. But nevertheless, it's one of those things where I've, I've just loved it. And I don't know if it's because it's just got this, this nostalgia to it. I don't know if I, it was just because I grew up with it. But one of the things that is really uh, fascinating to me about um, the Charlie Brown Christmas special is... Um, on one hand, it's longevity. I mean, this thing came out in 1965. Two years before I was born, it came out, December of 1965. But when you read a little bit of the background of this special, you, you realize that it, it, it was an unlikely production at best to begin with. I mean, it, it, it almost was never made. So when you, when you think about the... Uh, the kind of the iconic nature of a show like that in, 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 a, in a group of cartoon characters and in a, in a story that's told like that and how it is, it is now entrenched in the hearts and minds of generations of people and has been, you know, year after year, you know, going on decade after decade, and it's a show that almost wasn't made. Let me read a little bit of a background to you to kind of set this in your mind. Again, we're doing something a little different today, so just bear with me. We're not going to be doing an exposition of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. But just listen to a little background here. This is an article that was written about the Christmas special. The title of the article is, A Charlie Brown Christmas Almost Didn't Make It to Air, and Here's Why. A Charlie Brown Christmas is a classic for many, making its way into the living rooms of families every Christmas. However, the holiday staple almost never made it to air in 1965. 
Charlie Brown became popular to many via comic strips and newspapers. For the younger set, newspapers, they're paper things with print on them, and people used to read them, okay? And there was comics in them, and it was, anyway, sorry. I know, condescending, insulting. Uh, but anyway, the, the, uh, it became popular to many via comic strips and newspapers. Every day from the fall of 1950, uh, the hijinks of the Charlie Brown clan was on Americans' doorsteps. The comic allowed many to relive their childhoods through, through Brown's antics and continue to do so for several more decades. Comic creator Charles Schultz later said of Charlie Brown's longevity and success, quote, All the loves in the strip are unrequited. All the baseball games are lost. All the test scores are D-minuses. The great pumpkin never comes, and the football is always pulled away, end quote. That's Charlie Brown. That's the Charlie Brown comic strip. There is a refreshing reality about that comic strip. We'll get to that. For Charlie Brown, on the big screen, Schultz and Disney animator Bill Mendelson took on the project. The pair had previously brought Charlie Brown to life for a 1959 Ford commercial. Coca-Cola executive John Allen told Mendelssohn the company wanted to sponsor a family-friendly Christmas special in 1965. Mendelssohn agreed to produce a Charlie, uh, a Charlie Brown one before asking Schultz. Luckily, Schultz was on board and their work began. However, there were challenges. Critics expressed concern over how bringing a comic strip to life might displease viewers. Now get this, this is fascinating to me. They were concerned about fans' expectations for how the characters should sound, act, and move. If the animated portrayal challenged this, the project would fail, they thought. Here's what was going on. They were concerned that this iconic strip that was uh, committed to the printed page, if it was brought to life in animation and sound, it would be an utter disappointment because it would provoke the imaginations of people who had sort of in their own minds put onto these characters a certain way of movement and a certain way of speaking and sound. Fascinating. They go on to elaborate about that a little bit. It says, additionally, CBS was hesitant to disrupt their formula and air a children's special at night. When the idea for the special was first pitched to CBS executives, it was immediately rejected. So the first pass, it's a no-go. The president of CBS at the time did not believe in specials. He saw them as interruptions that distracted habit viewers from their usual TV-watching routines. According to him, this included children who would typically tune in on Saturday mornings and expect cartoons. Remember Saturday morning cartoons? Wow, Saturday morning cartoons. Takes me back. No one was expecting the same type of program to air on a weeknight. However, in early 1965, that president was fired from CBS. Additionally, there was concern surrounding how audiences, here's the more detail I was talking about, here, audience, how audiences would receive the material. One, the New, York, uh, the New York Times, excuse me, the New York Times, excuse me, one New York Times television reporter wrote, quote, television is running a big gamble. It will attempt a half-hour animated cartoon in color based on the newspaper comic strip Peanuts. In lifting Peanuts characters from the printed page and infusing them with motion and audibility, television is tampering with the imaginations of millions of comic strip fans, both well and self-conditioned on how Charlie Brown, Lucy, and others should act and talk, end quote. 
Now think about that in our current digital moving media age. It's like hard to even fathom. It's very telling, however, in that the vibrancy of the human imagination at that time was much more significant and substantive than it is even, even today. CBS, CBS executives eventually agreed to the idea when they learned that the CBS Corporation president was friends with Schultz and a fan of the comic, and matters who you know, I guess. This left the team with six months to prepare a half-hour animated special, something none of them had attempted before. The completed special disappointed executives. However, the slot was already scheduled with no time to pursue something else, the special aired as scheduled. So it, it, almost, it was initially rejected. There was concern. There was New York Times articles written about it. It was like it was, everything was kind of working against it. Finally, when it was produced, the first showing of it to the executives, they were not thrilled about it, but they were, it was, it's already too late. Well, I guess the rest is history, as they say. It says, however, the public proved them wrong. When the special aired over 15 million households, nearly half of the television sets in America at the time viewed the special. The reception to its initial airing quickly turned the program into a classic, one that was aired every year for 35 years before ABC acquired the rights to the program a year after Schultz's death. That 1965 special ended up being the first of more than 45 Charlie Brown animated specials for TV. Here's the backstory: Charlie Brown Christmas. So obviously, as I'm, I'm reading through this devotional, and it's drawing my attention to the account with the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 14, a little bit following beyond uh, 14 as well. Uh, and, and, and because of my sort of my nostalgic preoccupation with the Charlie Brown Christmas special and the scene with Linus Van Pelt, you know, quoting from this passage... And because I had this assignment of teaching in these two chapels this past week, I immediately went to the special and started thinking about its content. Okay, I told you this is weird. I started doing basically an exegesis of the Charlie Brown Christmas special. Now, work with me here. The, the sort of the, the climactic, if you will, uh, exclamation or a climactic exclamation during that special by the lead character, Charlie Brown himself, is this question. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Now, being the connoisseur, the expert on the Charlie Brown Christmas special, I have to confess something. The way that this was rattling around in my mind is just the general kind of tone and tenor of the special was wrong. I'm 55 years old. I, I've had this wrong since I, I probably remember the first time I watched the special. Surely I was, I don't know, four or five, six maybe. I don't know. So for going on 50 years, the way that this content from this special has just sort of percolated in my mind was wrong. And I'll give you an example of what I mean. This question, isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? In my mind, that was Charlie Brown lashing out in frustration at all the people and all the stuff and everything that he observed around him that was diminishing 
the true meaning of Christmas. You may recall he's frustrated about the commercialization. He, at one point, you even see him observing his own beloved dog, Snoopy, getting caught up in the Christmas light competition for his doghouse. I mean, you remember all that? And he's, he's frustrated with it. And, 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 and even the scene before he exclaims this question, he goes to look for a Christmas tree. And you've got all those, by the way, do a, do a search for retro you know, Christmas trees from the 60s and 70s, and you'll see what we're talking about if you remember this. But, you know, those aluminum kinds of trees, the colored ones and all that. And he's just, he's just exasperated by the whole thing. But, but I went back and started thinking about really what was going on in this special. Again, stay with me. I know that this is weird. But, and by the way, this is from the chapel service, so I mean, I already had this. I didn't prepare this for today, okay? I don't think it's that weird. But, but this is how the, basically, this is how the, the actual show begins, for the most part. I mean, obviously, it begins at the ice skating rink. I'm, I'm, I'm showing my geekness here, okay? So, but it kind of begins with this early scene where, Charlie Brown is lamenting to Linus. And here's the quote. There's something wrong with me, Linus. I just don't understand Christmas, I guess. I like getting presents and sending Christmas cards and decorating trees and all that, but I'm still not happy. I always end up feeling depressed. So this is actually a show about a kid who's depressed. He's so depressed, in fact, that what does he do? He seeks therapy. Seriously. She, it, Lucy, she puts up her psychiatry booth and charges five cents to give you some awesome counsel that will solve all your problems. Then he goes to see her and he is lamenting this depressive state that he's in around the Christmas season, seeking therapeutic answers to his questions. And who remembers the counsel, the wise counsel that Lucy gives to him? What does he need to do? He needs involvement. There's a Christmas play at the school. You can be the director. So that's the counsel that he gets to remedy his depression. Get busy. Get busy doing something. Get involved in things. That's the ticket. Well, how does that work out for Charlie Brown, right? He's still struggling with the true meaning of Christmas, he goes to the Christmas tree lot, sees all of the decorated, aluminum, metal-colored, wild-colored, lit-up trees, but this one catches his attention, and the reason it catches his attention is because it's real. He's like, he's after something real, right? And, and the, the, the scene on the right there Do you guys remember what's happening there? If you haven't watched this yet, or if you're going to go back and watch it again now that we're having this little, uh, you know, little little, little, uh, journey into this show again, this is this is a scene of some really mean ridicule. Like if you go back and watch this, they are absolutely cruel to him, like unvarnished cruelty. You'll never amount to anything. That's the dumbest tree ever. I mean, it's like, it's harsh cruelty. As I was talking to the secondary school students this week, 
you know, they're dealing with, in, in very real terms, they're dealing with levels of cruelty, victimized by cruelty, that can go viral on TikTok, social media, Instagram. Like, I'm talking to young people, and I know of specific cases where that's going on. But this, this is what's going, like, there's nothing new under the sun. Even, you know, in 1965, there's this, there's this picture of the cruelty that can happen in the lives of young people and adults, of course. And it's at the end of this lashing out by these friends that he says this, I guess I really don't know what Christmas is all about. I found that to be kind of a stunning statement by Charlie Brown. He is still turned in on himself and his lack of understanding about what the whole deal is. He's not lashing back out at these friends who are ridiculing him. He's still sort of sitting at that brick wall with Linus depressed because he's missing something. And I don't mean to be overly dramatic. I think Charles Schultz was a genius when he made this. I think he tapped into something that is incredibly profound. And that is that he tapped into the very essence of what Christmas is all about in the way that he portrayed this little show, this little special with cartoon characters. I guess I really don't know what Christmas is all about, he says. And then he turns his head up and screams out, isn't there anyone... Who knows what Christmas is all about? This is not Charlie Brown angry at these friends for being mean to him. This is Charlie Brown crying out in despair. That's literally what's going on in this special. He is despairing over this. And he's crying out for someone to answer this basic question. Then Linus, the unofficial philosopher theologian of the Peanuts gang, simply says, sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. Hold my blanket, please. (laughs) Do you know, interesting little side note, Linus doesn't like to be without his blanket. I mean, interesting little sort of production note here. To go and stand center stage and sort of declare transcendent truth about the essence of the coming of the Savior, he doesn't need a blanket. It's a really interesting production note. Of course, he goes to center stage, lights please, light shines on him, and then he proceeds to quote this. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. In the King James Version that he quotes from, they were sore afraid, it says. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. 
And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Light goes off. He walks back over to Charlie Brown. He says, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. I love this special even more that I've done the exegesis on it. I'm not kidding. It's incredible, especially when you peer a little more deeply into the passage that he actually quoted. And you just draw away some observations from this very familiar section of Scripture that's read over and over and over again this time of year. One of the things that I so appreciate about both the, the, the Charlie Brown Christmas special and this particular account, this particular part of the Christmas narrative that Luke provides for us in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 14, is the gritty reality of it all. And I think that when we come into this time of year, obviously we, we know this, you, 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 many of you experienced, have experienced or are experiencing some of this now, so it's, it's not the kind of thing that we're, we're all oblivious to it, but there is a certain, I don't know how to describe it, a certain hypnotic nature to this time of year. It's as though we are supposed to feel certain things and experience certain things during this time of year. In the same way that Charlie Brown was experiencing, and I hate to keep referring to a cartoon, but just work with me here. In the same way that the character Charlie Brown was expressing, like we're supposed to be experiencing this time of year in some kind of way. Like the, all, all of the um, accoutrements of the season, the lights and the music and, and the anticipation of time together with family that you haven't seen in a long time or the traditions of food and desserts and all these different things that sort of coincide with this time of year, for many of us, many people... There's a sense in which we get sort of drawn into this this obligation to feel certain things, to sort of experience this time of year in certain sentimental or uniquely special kinds of ways. And then for many of us, reality hits us, either in a moment or in a a protracted trial right in the middle of the Christmas season, and we're not feeling any of it at all. At the school, there is an elementary student and his sister, who is a secondary student, whose mom began having headaches during Thanksgiving break. By November 22nd, she was in the hospital And within 10 days, she was gone because she had a brain tumor that was extremely aggressive and cancerous, and it took her life in that short period of time. And this is is Christmas for this family and these kids. And I could go on and on. I could probably ask some of you and and, and get stories of how it's, it's not... You know, it's not chestnuts roasting on an open fire right now for me. In life in the body of Christ, we know that there are people who are carrying significantly heavy burdens during this time of year. 
And because of all the, the sort of fanfare that we actually produce ourselves sometimes around this time of year, that we sort of buy into in certain ways around this time of year, if it happens that we don't experience sort of the sentimentality of it all or those contrived sort of feelings of it all, we can become really discouraged. And if we happen to go through some very real trial, if, if the gritty realities of life confront us during this time of year, it can be all the more difficult and devastating because you're going through something while everyone around you seems to be reveling in frivolity of the season. And so the pain and the heartache and the discouragement can just be compounded during this time of year. There's a gritty reality about the true meaning of Christmas that we need to grab hold of tightly. We need to remind ourselves of this gritty reality once again. It's, it's, it's emblematic in a number of things we could draw from, but just, just take, for example, the fact that this first proclamation of the gospel, an angelic proclamation, no less, but the first Proclamation, I bring you good news. I bring you gospel. Evangelion, I'm bringing you the gospel. Good news of great joy. This angelic proclamation comes to shepherds. Dirty, not favored in society, viewed as ceremonially unclean because they were not able to uh, go through the rituals of becoming clean so that they could participate in the traditional Jewish worship practices. So they were often viewed in sort of condescending ways by the religious people for sure. They couldn't even testify in court. Shepherds were not given the, the right to testify in court. They were known as sort of a a bit of a corrupt bunch, if you will. And this is the group that God in His sovereign wisdom sends the angel to pronounce the coming of the Savior to these shepherds. And then you have this this really insignificant location, Bethlehem. Not even Bethlehem, a hillside outside of Bethlehem, but even Bethlehem when you think of the birth. Small town, insignificant by every observable measure. You have have this terrified response. So you have this genuine experience of utter fear at the appearance of this angel. Like protracted, deep, profound fear that has to be mitigated immediately. The, the message to the shepherds, he, 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 the angel tells them, this will be a sign to you because you're going to go and you're going to find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. We're talking about a very inhospitable birthplace. 
You, you can't get around the, the, the nature of this. It, it was dirty, unsanitary, likely in the presence of stable animals and even possibly other onlookers. And we're not talking about some pristine location with a bright star shining, shining over it and halos appearing over all the participants' heads. This was a gritty reality that was happening here. And the fact of the matter is, is that when you think about the pronouncement of the coming of the Savior, this is what He has come into. He has come into our gritty reality, our wretched sinful reality as a Savior. Reading from Spurgeon's Joy to the World, he says this, Man is like a harp unstrung, and the music of his soul's living strings is discordant. His whole nature wails with sorrow, but the Son of David, that mighty harpist, has come to restore the harmony of humanity. And where His gracious fingers move among the strings, the touch of the fingers of an incarnate God brings forth music sweet as that of the spheres and melody rich as an angel's song. Earth's joy is small. Her mirth is trivial. But heaven has sent us joy immeasurable fit for immortal minds. The gritty reality of our sin and the gritty reality of our environment and the gritty nature of this fallen world, this is what the Savior entered into. This is the message of good tidings and great joy that will be for all people. Spurgeon goes on, the joy of sin is a fire fountain having its source in the burning soil of hell, maddening and consuming those who drink its fire water. Of such delights we desire not to drink. To be happy in sin is worse than to be damned since it's the beginning of grace to feel wretched in sin. Do you catch that? Let me say that again. To be happy in sin is worse than to be damned since it is the beginning of grace to feel Wretched in sin. The guilt and shame of sin is the beginning of grace, he says. God save us from unholy peace and from unholy joy. The joy announced by the angel of the nativity is as pure as it is lasting, as holy as it is great. Let us then always believe concerning the Christian religion that it has its joy within itself. Let our joy be living water from those sacred wells which the Lord Himself has dug. May His joy abide in us, that our joy may be full. Of Christ's joy we cannot have too much. There is no fear of running to excess when His love is the wine we drink. Oh, to be plunged in this pure stream of spiritual delights. Spurgeon's drawing us 
by drawing us to this account and this proclamation of the angels to recognize that the joy that we long for is a joy that comes when we are saved from our sin and we begin to walk with the Savior. It is a joy that so far surpasses these temporal joys of our sin, this fire, this fire fountain that he calls it. And it is joy in itself. Salvation in Christ is in itself joy, he says. And it's a salvation that comes to make us new and to take us from being lost in our sin, dead in our sins and trespasses, and to bring us to life. The Savior did not come to fanfare and frivolity so that everyone, regardless of their current state, would revel along with this new person coming onto the scene who has some kind of special gift or some kind of special leadership quality or speaks some kind of special new message. Everything about this announcement and everything about the actual coming of Christ is this work of the transcendent, holy, magnificent, omnipotent, omnipresent God to bring about salvation that begins in complete obscurity. And in the midst of defilement. And yet, bursting into the midst of all of that is an angelic host praising God. Our shepherds, who are the recipients and ultimate benefactors of this gracious proclamation, who then go and see this Savior that's been born, and then go away and begin taking the message of this good tiding, this gospel message to others who marvel at what they're saying. You move, as, as we've already alluded to, you move from this gritty reality to this glorious reality, this good news message, great joy for all people, This is Christmas that the Savior's been born, Linus would say. This is the essence of Christmas. A Savior has been born to you. And then the heavenly celebration that follows. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. King James Version. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. That's a better translation. Peace to those upon whom His grace has been bestowed. This message, this angelic proclamation, this Christmas story is about peace. True peace, eternal peace being made right with God, having peace restored with God, those of us who are at enmity with Him, who are the enemies of God, are brought to a place of peace simply because 
the unimaginable grace of God has been lavished aboundingly in our hearts. And we turn to Him in faith. This message, or excuse me, this celebration by the angelic host, it's a stunning picture, really. Isn't it, isn't it fascinating to think about the, the statements in the article that I read about how there was concern about producing this animated cartoon because it would provoke the imaginations of people who had become accustomed to experiencing or knowing these characters in static form and allowing them to come to life in their imaginations. Think of the nature of the coming of Christ. Why, did, why, why was the fullness of time, as Scripture says, why was the fullness of time in the first century? Why not now? I mean, we've got satellites. We've got, we can get the message out instantaneously. But there's no, there's no, you know, there's no ocean we can't cross. Here's the reality of the gospel and its propagation. Not every shepherd had an angel come to them and tell them the message. Those shepherds had an angelic messenger in a worship service that probably was astounding, but then they became the messengers. They became the evangelists. And it became a matter of placing faith and trust in the revelation of Christ as he is proclaimed by others who have come to know him by grace. It's an astounding account of God's mercy and grace and even his work of saving his people. And it should, as we consider the realities of the Savior coming into our gritty, fallen, filthy reality to bring salvation and ultimate peace with God. And as we consider the implications of that grace, that undeserved favor that He has demonstrated to those of us who are in Him, it should compel us, like it did the angels, to worship. To just shout from the mountaintops, glory to God in the highest. kind of close out our reflections on this passage, I want to read one final section from Spurgeon's little book, Joy to the World. Before I do, because I don't want you to miss it, I need to give you some definitions because he uses some Victorian-era words here. You will come across in just a moment the word cops, spelled C-O-P-S-E. That is a small thicket of trees. So when you hear the word cops, don't think of, you know, some reality TV show or, you know, Mike Payne or whatever. (laughs) Think of a small thicket of trees. Another word, spray. That is a twig or a branch. Okay, so get the right thing in your mind when you hear this word spray. Mead. That's a meadow. Okay. Azure, 
that is a cloudless sky. And canticle is a liturgical song. You ready? <laughs> Listen to how Spurgeon wraps this, this thought up around this worship celebration with the angels. He says, what is the instructive lesson to be learned from this first syllable of the angel's song? This. That salvation is God's highest glory. He is glorified in every dewdrop that twinkles to the morning sun. He is magnified in every wood flower that blossoms in the copse, although it lives to blush unseen and waste its sweetness in the forest air. God is glorified in every bird that warbles on the spray, in every lamb that skips in the mead. Do not the fishes in the sea praise Him? From the tiny minnow to the huge leviathan, do not all creatures that swim the water bless and praise His name? Do not all created things extol Him? Is there anything beneath the sky save man that does not glorify God? Do not the stars exalt Him when they write His name upon the azure of heaven in in their golden letters? Do not the lightnings adore Him when they flash His brightness in arrows of light piercing the midnight darkness? Do not thunders extol Him when they roll like drums in the march of the God of armies? Do not all things exalt Him from the last even to the greatest, but sing, sing, O universe, till you have exhausted yourself. You cannot afford a song so sweet as the song of incarnation. Though creation may be a majestic organ of praise, it cannot reach the compass of the golden canticle, incarnation. Lo, what wisdom is here. God becomes man that God may be just and the justifier of the ungodly. Lo, what power, for where is power so great as when it conceals its power? What power that Godhead should unrobe itself and become man? Behold, what love is revealed to us when Jesus becomes a man. Behold, what faithfulness. How many promises are this day kept? How many solemn obligations are this hour discharged? Tell me one attribute of God that is not manifest in Jesus, and your ignorance shall be the reason why you have not seen it so. The whole of God is glorified in Christ, and though some part of the name of God is written in the universe, it is here best read in Him who was the Son of Man and yet the Son of God. Let's pray.